You are listening to Uncanny Landscapes, Excursions into the Otherwise, with Justin Hopper. So yeah, so he was talking about the the hope that he had to one day go back to this land and rebuild his home. And that's very interesting, these two narratives standing on one hill claiming the same land, which in reality, or ideally it would be great if it could be shared, you know, and everybody will be happy. But obviously reality has proven uh, that it's not possible. And as long as, as these two narratives cannot coexist, the physicality of it cannot coexist. So what does it actually mean if he claimed back his land? What does it mean about me? Welcome to Uncanny Landscapes, a series of conversations around and excursions into landscapes of the otherwise. You've just heard today's guest, Rui Greenberg, describing an encounter he had near his home on the Israel-Lebanon border. More of Rui very soon. And I'm your host, Justin Hopper. I am speaking to you from a small room in Dedham Vale, an area of outstanding uncanny beauty in the east of England. It is my goal, through the conversations and accompanying detritus that comprise these podcasts, to determine and slowly, poorly, define their subject matter. They are concerned with a wide variety of interpretations of the uncanny landscape, which is, for reasons that will become obvious, the experience with which we so often encounter our surroundings. In our places, especially old places, and what place isn't old, generation upon generation of ghosts must coexist in the memories and narratives of the landscape. At the best of times, these ghosts co-mingle, even spur one another on, enhance each other's stories. But in some situations, they are in a state of conflict, a memory battle, as to which narrative overwhelms the others, which ghost haunts, and which one fades away. I'm looking at two photographs. One presents two distinct areas of outdoor space. On the near side, wild tufts of grass and cow parsley, the wheel ruts of a well-used dirt path, a sky full of darkening clouds. On the far side, a brightening sky above the rooftop of a barn, and the crowns of trees, and most of all, golden wheat bursting from softly undulating ground. In between the two areas, they are divided by a metal gate with a red sign that reads, Private Land. The second photograph presents the rocky bed of a small ravine, cut through by a rushing white-capped stream. On the near side, tree trunks arch over the water and strike out at odd angles from stone-scattered and rusty earth. The far side is dazzled with greenery, the canopy of the trees and bushes and the ravine sides spilling and splitting. In between, they are divided by the half-shell remains of a tank, which sits where it fell from the top nearly 50 years ago. Its treads the same color as a nearby water-slick stone. In his photographs of his native Israel, and those of his newly adopted English home, 
Rui Greenberg shows dividing lines, both subtle and not so subtle, that become the markers of landscape and the demarcation of narratives. Between old and new, public and private, the stories of those with power and of those without. Rowie Greenberg is a London-based Israeli artist whose photographic practice is concerned with landscape as a complex intersection between culture, geography, and autobiography. He explores the effects of human activity on land, political borders, and ecology with large format camera and film. His gorgeous photographs are pictorial and alluring, yet set within the context of their stories, they become uncanny illustrations of landscape. I spoke with Rowie about looking at a contested landscape with new eyes, of the strange experience of re-evaluating his own home, and what such realizations mean for the very concept of home, and of leaving Israel only to find similar fault lines, if couched in more subtle terms. Visit RoeyGreenbergPhotography.com to look at his work while we speak. There's a link in this podcast's info. And now, describing his birthplace on Israel's borderlands, Roy Greenberg. I grew up in a kibbutz in the north of Israel, so right on the border with Lebanon, uh, somewhere remote, which is kind of surrounded by nature. So I always had this strong connection with the environment around me or the, the landscape. When you, uh, but when you, when you say... Uh, very close to the border with Lebanon. I mean, is it something, is it a few miles or is it 40 or 50 miles? Or Oh, it's like literally five minutes uh, slow walk. Like you can see Lebanon houses, like houses from Lebanon, from my parents' uh, balcony. You can stand there and wave, literally. Right. So, so basically, if you imagine uh, this relationship with nature or walking, in the landscape. So if you go east or south, you're kind of free to roam. But if you try to go west or north, you immediately hit a border, which is what we call a hot border. So it's like it's conflicted and there is uh, an immediate threat, basically, that this place represents. So growing up in this environment was this mixture of... uh, Again, free roaming and and nature hikes, but at the same time, the border was always like this uh, threat that is like waiting to erupt uh, in different ways. When I was young, there was uh, a lot of uh, activity on that border when Israel was still kind of partly holding parts of Lebanon, South Lebanon. So there was a lot of like, uh, like firing missiles from both sides. So you kind of get used to it, but it's always this thing that, um, this violence that always is there. They would put an alarm, it was a special call. Uh, In Hebrew, it was translated into uh, Tiger Sea, that was the code. Uh, And that meant that there is indication that somebody has crossed the border. And I have this memory of the sirens goes up, goes off, and then my mother runs like I remember the coat she was wearing, um, this purple coat, and she was running towards me. I was in the kindergarten, like early, like talking probably three years old, and she was all uh, nervous coming to pick me up because the drill was to take the kids home and lock the doors, and then the men would have the weapons in the cupboard, 
and they would take the weapon and go out on patrol. And my mom, being the mother that she is, uh, from all these nerves, uh, she would sit in the kitchen or stand in the kitchen and make like uh, uh, cheese toasties and hand them out to the men outside. You know, I mean, like this weird reality. Right. Um, and then, so, so this obviously is something that uh, followed through in my life. Like I, I, I went and did my uh, mandatory military service. And to begin with, it seems like something that it's my turn to take um, to take this uh, responsibility to protect basically home, my parents, my neighborhood, my community. So it made sense at the time, um, but we probably will get a little bit more into this later. But the reality in Israel, like the political reality and the borders, um, like this is maybe a clear border where it's like two separate uh, entities like countries that border there but obviously other places in Israel the border is not that straightforward like so this relationship to uh, conflict or borders always something that like something that started very early on in my life I moved to London in 2018 and I was put in contact with this uh, lady very nice lady her name is Henny uh, Westbrook and she has been very kind to me she's uh, an art enthusiastic and she loves wine and we <laughs> with yeah it's something that we share because I uh, I'm a trained sommelier in my other life so so we had this bond again like with wine and going to see exhibitions and uh, so and she's a member in a in a club down in like in Mayfair and I think it was like just after I moved here, uh, she invited me to a dinner at the club, which is very nice. And for me, it's like this kind of like posh uh, environment sure. that I'm not used to. So it's exciting yeah. as well. Uh, and obviously she have other friends and she thought it would be an interesting uh, for me to meet this lady. Her name is Fatima and she is Lebanese, obviously living in London. She's an academic. She's teaching here and she is a journalist as well like she's very very smart and educated uh, lady uh, and I would say that on my half like on my side like I have a lot or a full belly on the Israeli politics and this so in Israel people will describe me as far left as possible um, <laughs> which is interesting but then on this dinner that we had, like we introduced each other and, you know, it started, it's very civilized environment because it's London. Uh, and to begin with, like to meet someone from Lebanon is, is unusual for me because this is something that I would never be able to, to do in Israel. The simple thing of meeting people from this country is just not possible. And for me, it's also symbolic to the relationship from young age, this relationship with Lebanon and as the conversation kind of like opened up and we became a little bit more uh, comfortable, uh, it came up like from Fatima, basically she grew up on the other side of the border. As a young uh, child, she had experienced the first Israeli-Lebanon war in 82, where the Israeli army have heavily bombarded uh, the south of Lebanon and and the city she was living in. So she also had this very traumatic experience from childhood uh, with Israelis, or what Israel symbolized. Yeah. And even though she's been living outside of Lebanon and she's also 
uh, from where she comes from, she's very liberal in her opinions and views. But it was very interesting to see that this tension that we both claim to be free of, like on our side, is still there. Right. So it came across as like kind of an accusational uh, uh, encounter from her side, I felt. Like there was a lot of like anger towards me or what I stand for. Uh, and it almost like didn't help. Like the more I kind of like took responsibility and said that whatever was happening is wrong in my opinion, it kind of didn't help. It just kind of like fueled the energy around that. Right. And at some point I just realized, and it was a really odd moment, that I have had been forced, like in brackets, to somehow defend Israel. Like after like really long time that I haven't been in this position, I was always this accusing because we've been like Israelis or the Jewish community, even in London, like I would always take the side, like the other side, like against the Israeli policies in this day and age. Uh, the politics and all of a sudden it was like a kind of like a transformation I had to not defend Israel as is today but it's like it was really deep like for me like these sentiments and I mentioned I think in the writing like my father in this war that we were discussing like the 82 war my father was uh, on reserves in the army and his uh, jeep that he was driving was hit by a direct uh, 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 it's like a, it's not a rocket it's a small rocket I'm not sure mm. how to call it but and they were really lucky that the engine took most of the explosion but still today like he has uh, all of his hands are covered with uh, uh, metal bits and oh, wow. uh, he's been in hospital for a while and somehow I think this moment like when his jeep hit it was like I could just not have been here just as much you know if the if it was like one meter here or there yeah so yeah and like my best friend like lost his father in this war before he was even born so uh there's a lot of tension around that which even in israel's opinion i know this is going a little bit into the politics too much but even in israel's opinion like this is the first war that was unjustified like in the public view that was unnecessary uh so it's kind of like a shifting uh, yeah. point in time within Israeli uh, policies but or, but yeah this thing with Fatima uh, this encounter which was super interesting and by the way we became kind of like not I wouldn't say best friends but we are French friendly and I went to her uh, housewarming party oh, uh, right. last okay. year and so this relationship is developed which is something that I'm really happy because first she's an incredible woman but also what it symbolizes, I think, is, is, is strong for me and maybe for her as well. So, In a way, it sounds as though what you're describing is the, is the sort of shock of the experience of realizing maybe you're not entirely sure who you are once you arrive in London. Um, and you talk a lot about being an outsider and the, the outsider's eyes. For a long time, I had this feeling living in Israel that I need to leave for some reasons are obvious like Israel is extremely small so very limited in what it have to offer in terms of like culture and art and fundings so professionally like in my career it made sense to try and go somewhere else but even deeper than that um, I think it have to do with the 
the Israeli uh, scale, so it goes back to landscape, but this physicality of tiny strip of land surrounded with uh, uh, basically enemy countries and borders. Um, and on the other side, there is the sea, the Mediterranean Sea. So it's like the only, uh, the only where you, the only place you can leave Israel to is by sea or by plane. There's no right. way you can drive out or just cross the border. Uh, in most cases, like there is like some sort of like peace arrangement with Egypt and, and Jordan. So things are not black and white, but uh, it's such a small place and it feels a bit claustrophobic. Yeah, and it's in something that is embedded also in Israeli culture, this uh, kind of like dichotomy between us and them. So like everyone who is leaving, it's actually like there is a negative term in Hebrew to describe people who have left the homeland. Uh, and then there is a positive uh, way of describing people who come back. So basically, uh yeah, so it's, so it's interesting in that sense. Like there's a lot of uh, nationalist uh, sentiment about being in Israel or living in Israel or choosing not to. There's a lot of sentiment in there. It's not that like in the US, you decide to move from California to New York. Nobody really asks a question. They just, you know, it's like a matter of preference. Like there might be some sort of like sentiment, but it's not as nationalist. Yeah. And also within Europe or in other places, but in Israel, it's something that's really strong. Uh, and yeah, so it is small. I felt that I am stuck there, slightly claustrophobic. Moving from the kibbutz to Tel Aviv uh, kind of like sustained me for a while because it's the big city, but it's still tiny. And after a few years in Tel Aviv and working as an artist and other things, like I felt like it's just limited and I wanted to go and expand my horizons and have an experience that is not uh, like culturally uh, same-ish because yeah there is diversity in Israel but it's a little bit different like the exposure to other cultures that I had here within the couple of years that I've been living here uh, even via the college so people from Asia and people from basically any part like all parts of the earth all languages uh, so that's something that I really wanted. Like I felt I don't want to be uh, stuck in this bubble that uh, is what I call home. Like this is what, you know, it's, it's very, I'm very strongly attached to this place with all the problems that I have with the politics that is currently going on there. Um, but I felt like I need to try something else. And so far, I think London has been uh, good to me. Like mm. this uh, big world adventure. So a lot of the work that you've done in Israel, the photography that you've done, um, is is kind of about revisiting these places, revisiting these landscapes, and and looking at them with what you describe a few times as new eyes. Um, and uh, there was one story in your dissertation that was really, really sort of descriptive of this, uh, and and I think ties into these ideas of home that you're talking about there. Yeah, I think this one particular image is, uh, is one of the first kind of like early work that I was doing in that context. So after I left the kibbutz and I started uh, my studies and work on this uh, 
landscape work, which is as yeah, yeah you, you described it as revisiting, which is interesting because it was revisiting a lot of places that I was very familiar with, like again going back to my childhood and wandering around and traveling a lot, so I knew a lot of the places. But then when I started to build my own kind of uh, political entity or ideas, I was starting to become more and more um, uh, familiar with uh, alternative stories of those places. So basically narratives that I grew up on were very one-sided, describing the Israeli narrative or the Zionist movement narrative towards the landscape and then revisiting to begin with, like as a research, I started finding out uh, all of these places prior to the Israeli independence war. This is all the 48 war uh, in, in other uh, narratives. Those were, a lot of the places were inhabited by Arab villages or people, they were not Palestinian at the time because Palestinian was the name of the country. So everyone from there was Palestinian. But as a national movement, it started after the evacuation of a lot of those places that took part in the war. And one of them in particular is Tel, Tel Kadesh, but it's referenced in the Bible. Uh, so it's quite ancient and it has a long history of Byzantine and Romans that have been going through there. But the last uh, cycle of this place was, it was an Arab village next to this archaeological site. Uh, and in '48, the Israeli forces, as part of like uh, this operation of uh, conquering the Galilee, um, on, a, on one of the battles, the people from this village have uh, evacuated or ran away. And later on, the, the remains of the houses were uh, demolished. And the kibbutz where I grew up was literally... Uh, established in 48 by some of the people who were taking part in this uh, military operation. Right, and right. It's so, so in other words, it's not just that this was uh, a village that, that was destroyed as a consequence of the war. It was the people who took part in clearing that area, so to speak, became the founders of your home. Yeah, some of them. That was something that was unique to the Israeli army at the time. It was a combination of uh, fighting and then uh, agriculture and establishing basically new places on the new borders. It was, uh, so they were soldiers who were also equipped in inhabiting places and working the land, basically to maintain those as uh, strongholds on the new borders. Um, but that's something that in my childhood, we would go to this archaeological site and we would learn about the Byzantine and the Jewish history there. But, and it's a national park, so there is like a sign as you walk in describing this history. And there is no one word that describes the Arab village across the road. And I'm talking, this is like one kilometer from the kibbutz. So basically, this place that I knew, like I visited like hundreds of times. I always knew that there is a part like of the ruins there, but I never really questioned what it is, what it is. It's like, you know, in, in, in terms of like now that it's like the picturesque, like when I'm in England and, and so it seems like something picturesque, like, you know, the ruins in the landscape, uh, which is now a cow grazing area. But yeah. when I go back to revisit it, these places after the research I've done and kind of became more familiar with the narrative of the place of what was there before, it became the kibbutz 
land where I grew up. Uh, so I found out the, the, the story that I just told you, like in briefly, and I started going there and, and trying to take pictures. And in the pictures, I you know it's, you can't really see them as this is only audio, but uh, what I was trying to do at the time and still in a way, I think is very much part of my style. I was trying to capture those very uh, alluring or alluring images that kind of look somehow like uh, pictures of landscape from Tuscany or other places, you know, these uh, destinations like postcodes destination, but always to have something in them that kind of hint when you actually put like put your attention to the details of like the wider uh, narrative and it kind of invites a conversation about about those places or the way we see them or, or deal with them. And when yeah. I went to Tel Kadesh one early morning to, to kind of like try and capture the, the early uh, morning, like sunrise, uh, which is like used as a backlight to the vineyards that were just in the full like foliage. So the red color and there's mist in the background. And in the foreground of this image, there is a, uh, uh, few square bricks and deeper into that that you can find like a, a combination of like a stone house which was demolished and the stones are like scattered through the foreground yeah. but also like those more modern uh, uh, structures that are used as the cow grazing uh, that it is today but you mean when, when, you say, there, when you say the modern structures you're talking about the fencing and that sort of yeah, there's the fencing and there's, uh, like I think, like there's a water tank that fell off. So a lot of yeah. like, it's like kind of like accumulation of ruins, basically, but from different era, but they all kind of like collide. There's like one destiny of the place. Yeah. And that's all happening while the sun is like very softly uh, kind of like lighting the picture in a way that is quite luring. Yeah. And when I was there, I... I I saw this guy because I had to cross like a few fences to get in there because it, it is like a, a cow grazing area. So it's fenced quite heavily. Uh, and I saw this man start to climb toward me from the road. And I, to begin with, I thought it's something to do with the cows or the cattle that was there. And I was kind of like trespassing into something that I wasn't supposed to. But he approached me and apparently he, he was an Arab, Israeli Arab. And he told me a story which even in the dissertation I mentioned, I don't never ever know what's true or not. But sure. he did claim that his uh, father or grandfather was uh, living in this Kedes village like prior to 48. And then part of the family went to Lebanon and somehow part of the family went back to Israel. And on his uh, birthday, he comes. So, yeah, so he was talking about the, the hope that he had to one day go back to this land and rebuild his home. And that's very interesting. It was an interesting encounter for me, again, somehow in a way similar to the one I had with Fatima later on. But these two narratives standing on one hill claiming the same land, which in reality, or ideally it would be great if it could be shared, you know, and everybody will be happy. But obviously reality has proven uh, that it's not possible. And as long as, as these two narratives cannot coexist, the physicality of it cannot coexist. So what does it actually mean if he claim back his land? What does it mean about me? Like about the kibbutz where I grew up, about where my parents live today? Like this is 
this is my home. I don't know any other home. Like, so I don't have this like uh, generational memory of uh, having other homes. Like my grandparents came from Morocco on one end and the other side came from Poland after the war. And I grew up in this like new, as this new Israeli identity which basically erase everything else that was before so all i know is this is home um so it was an interesting again this encounter with the narrative that i was looking at and kind of trying to shed light on but when you actually meet it in reality and, and kind of try to put to put in in your imagination what it actually means So yeah, the work I described just before about Tel Kadesh and this, this was, I think, a work that I started in 2012-2013 uh, with the landscape and yeah, it started as revisiting mainly places that I was very familiar from where I grew up, so in the Galilee and the kibbutz and this environment. And later on, this work kind of uh, evolved and I started going elsewhere, so revisiting places from my military service or military reserves calls or just places that I was attracted to. And it took me some time. I was accumulating work. And at some, at some, time, at some point, I realized that most of the work that I'm producing is actually centering around one stretch of geographical phenomena, which is the Great Rift Valley which big large portion of it is actually carving uh, in Israel or within the Israeli uh, country borders. And it actually creates some of the borders. So it creates the Jordan River, which goes all the way from the northern border with Syria and Lebanon, and then down along the Jordan Valley, which is now, and the West Bank, which is now in very much in, in the context of like political debate these days about the, the situation there at the moment. And it goes down to the Sea of Galilee and from there to the Dead Sea. Uh, and the break itself carves on through the outback to the Red Mountains of Eilat. And then it, it goes on uh, basically into Africa. So Ethiopia and the Great Rift Valley there, which is more kind of famous, but I realized that because of the topographic features of these phenomena that are quite striking, it creates varied landscape. Mm. Uh, so it's like a, a desert in the shadow of the rain and there's the Dead Sea and the, and the Sea of Galilee. So there's a lot of like biblical references, the Judean, Judean desert. It, it creates a lot of of uh, places that were interesting to me. And when I realized that all of the work that I'm doing is kind of like on different parts of this phenomena, uh, and when I kind of put one one together and I realized like the name in Hebrew is translated into the break or the great break. Right. Uh, is something that meant to describe the land or the feature so the land has break 
into two parts and created this valley. But the break was also something that was very strongly attached to sentiment in the yeah. way that I was working with the Israeli, Israeli landscape. So it kind of made sense. And obviously referring to Alex Sof, if you know the, the work like Sleeping by the Mississippi, yeah. where he follows this uh, allegorical narrative, uh, basically following this geographical uh, feature, which also tamed the, the journey, the journey itself in, in some sort of a, a metaphorical element. So that's something that became more together or became uh, a work in its own. I think it was 2016. So I was working prior to it. And then once I figured it out, it gave me a bit of a push to actually start working within these boundaries. Yeah. So, yeah. And if you think about it, just to give you an idea, if you drive from north to south, from Eilat, which is the southern border with Egypt, all the way up north to where my kibbutz is and the Lebanese-Syrian border, you can cover that in five hours, no stop. Oh, right. Okay. The valley floor, the Route 90. And for me, it was this, this Route 90 is also the longest stretch of road that you can drive. Like this five hours is as long as you can drive in Israel with no stop, just going right. forward. That's incredible. I mean, I, I genuinely didn't understand that it's that small. So, yeah. So the, the whole idea of going on the road, you know, doing a project about a road trip in a place that is so small, uh, and over the stretch of like five years, basically, I was accumulating work on this road trip. So it's yeah. a road trip and it's allegorical in its own, like this claustrophobic uh, sentiment that I described before. This, uh, it, so yeah, so it is a project that is very much about a journey, but the sentiment of the break is something that I hope goes through all of the works, which going back to what I described before is this trying to, uh, to highlight certain problematities within this landscape. But I think they're all, all the images are full of uh, empathy. So I do have this strong relation and real like connection to this place, which I love, but at the same time have this like itch or anger or unresolved issues with the way that it is today and i hope that that goes with the combination of the images and the title and the the project as a whole and and it's a it's an interesting mix of images actually because some of them you know the 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 sort of um hero image i guess from it uh is something like this one of the syrian tank yeah, it is. It actually is in one of the sources of the Jordan River. It's called the Banyas uh, uh, River. It's a national park, and this tank is uh, is a Syrian tank that uh, basically fell off the cliff in seventy three or sixty seven. One of the wars between Israel and and Syria, and it's been lying there ever since within this national park. So it's, it's something that I knew again, revisiting this place as a child, I knew the place and it was also so romantic, always yeah. a romantic place to go to, you know, the tank in the river, like, which is cool. But again, yeah. when I started working within this context, it was one of the places I wanted to revisit with my large format camera and like actually address it because again, it symbolized this thing like this, uh, forces that, 
operate within this landscape that are so dramatic, but still so mundane on, on, at the same time. The one that I see matched with the Syrian tank one is this one of the, of the road sign, which looks, looks to me like it's advertising, you know, kayaking or something. Yeah. Um, and the idea that these two things are, are side by side, that this, uh, uh, you know, the, the positioning of it makes it into this really sort of dramatic kind of uh, interpretation of this landscape as being, as being a, a dividing line, even when used for recreation. This romantic notion of the landscape and uh, and uh, the river that is turning and going into the horizon and the, the way that composition work uh, and even later on, like starting to kind of learn or teaching myself photography and coming across like Ansel Adams, one of the first things that I obviously encountered. So this notion of this like. Uh, the landscape, like this uh, sublime nature, it, it was something that I was very much uh, aware of and to some extent very frustrated with working in Israel because it is, like I think I talk about it also in the dissertation, it is very unique uh, terrain and very unique landscape and very varied, but it is mostly a desert uh, and there is no like spectacular mountains or rivers or it's all very small and limited. So working in Israel, like in relation to this uh, sublime or picturesque images was always like almost like a joke. Like it was uh, uh, like ironic thing to do because it isn't really that beautiful or grand or anything like that. Right, so I was right. aware of that in that context, but um it only kind of became really apparent to me uh, the roots of this uh, this way of working when I came to England and starting kind of like my research within like English culture and representation of landscape. Because uh, within Israel, I think it, it came from a place of kind of counteract to the ways that Israel was photographed until that point, mainly like in, in the context of, of fine art, mainly black and white. There's like a say in Hebrew that you constantly have to look at the Israeli landscape, like as an art with a little bit of like sand in your eyes. It's like this, it's such a problematic place and it's so contaminated with politics. So you cannot just look at it as pure, you know, picturesque. So this is something that really bothered me because with all the problems that I have with the place, again, this is home. So I always had this very strong empathy to the landscape that I was familiar with and I wanted it to look the best that it can. And I think the way of making it work was eventually this combination of like applying those uh, rules on that landscape and and then extracting or, or focusing the, the view on something that will uh, hint, like the tank is one of the obvious ones, but uh, I think you understand the, the notion. So this combination of, of is something that you worked with, but, but within the English context is definitely something that made it more apparent to me.
And you've begun this new series of work, bringing, you know, again, you refer to it as new eyes to the English picturesque and, um, and some very traditional kinds of places in Sussex and Dorset. And you call this series, You're Not Allowed to Be Here. Um, can you tell me a little bit about that and, and where that's come from and what you're sort of going for with that? Yes, sure. So the, the working title or the dissertation title was uh, You're Not Allowed to Be Here, which is uh, basically a quote that I took from one of my uh, early encounters with a farmer or landowner in one of those locations where I realized that I'm actually trespassing, uh, which is something that I often do here, or not willingly, but obviously we'll get to that a little bit uh, later, but it, it's... Uh, but the actual title that I use for the work now, the body of work, is uh, English Encounters. So it's, it's kind of a little bit uh, step back from this uh, sentiment again that I felt I need to tone down a bit when I was writing the dissertation. But yeah, like in Israel, as you mentioned, revisiting was very strong element. So I was familiar. I was an insider approaching those landscapes. And when I moved here, it took me some time uh, and I was really questioning myself whether I have the legitimacy really like to work with landscape because I was used to work with landscape that I was very familiar with and have a lot of subtext too. Like I have the context, I am doing research, I'm from there, I have something to say. And coming here as an outsider, I felt completely out of my depth. Like it felt like almost cheeky and unprofessional to try and do the same uh so it started like very like with a lot of hiccups like but i i think the one thing that really uh is is coming through in both work but it's something that is deeper maybe is this urge to go on the road and explore and encounter uh new places and the adventure like i i quote the rebecca solnit from her field guide of getting lost which is like this more than anything is this sentiment like to get lost like this opportunity to be somewhere i am not familiar with both geographically but also culturally and historically and kind of like get lost within it rather than find the answers find like those possibilities within this uh, unknown so that's something that kind of helped me in the early stage of the process to get myself back on the road and get going and and there to go somewhere because it all like driving around England, everything seemed the same to me to begin with. It was like <laughs> sameish, sameish, sameish. Yeah. <laughs> the first time I went out, I was I took like two days, two nights in a hotel. Like somebody suggested that I go to Dungeness because apparently it's the only uh, desert within England, and somebody I will be feeling more comfortable there which is funny in its own, but I went there and basically all the possibilities that I saw there seemed exactly like the pictures of Dungeness that I saw online. So I felt I have nothing to do here. Like it's all done. Um, but driving around the country, country lane, not far from that region, because I had some time to spend, which is important, like the duration. In Israel, I would do these like day trips and come back because I knew where I'm going pretty much. Yeah. And here it's like I needed this time like to basically get lost somewhere and like to, to be a little bit more intimate. And driving around, I noticed that all the hedgerows and gates and fences 
a huge feature of the landscape that I'm trying to portray and obviously trying to find references and looking in, into English landscape took me to Constable and Turner and other great British painters and this idea of the picturesque and I would go to the National Gallery and the V&A and look at Constable and trying to kind of like get this color palette and drama you know, to, to work with. So as a reference when I go out, but every time I would spot something that kind of resembles something, I realized that there's no way I can get access to this place. It's all gated and fenced and this private land everywhere. So it became this extremely frustrating encounter to the point that I thought, okay, I cannot work here. It's like impossible. I cannot even stop the car anywhere. Like yeah. it's really, uh, was upsetting, but but it, it turned out to be something that I could work with because once I managed to stop the car and I was looking, one of the first images is the one with, uh, there's a banana and uh, orange oranges on the fence. And I stopped there after like really driving for a couple hours and, and not being able to see anything to, and, and then I got to this, to this uh, it's like a bay in the road and I could see there is a lake or a reservoir. And in the back, there was this uh, foliage uh, color on the trees, which kind of looked very cool, like a constable kind of like color that I, I was uh, interested in. So I managed to stop the car there. And I realized, again, I cannot really get into the, the, the place that I was interested in. But I think something clicked in that moment, like this something probably from my background with this relationship to boundaries and borders. Uh, and I decided that the border or the gate will become the, the subject maybe of the work. So, so all of this constable landscape is still there in the back or potentially with the clouds. And, uh, but I stepped backwards and included, so the, basically dividing the frame into this far and the near, like, where you're not allowed to be and where you are and this place where you could be became really interesting to me uh, and in this particular image it come across as or it presents itself as the banana skin and the oranges which is something that I input into the I edit them into the scene kind yeah. of like completely, uh, altering the color scene or the the formality of the English landscape which is so formal anyway um, but I felt something that I didn't felt in Israel as much because it was so obvious to me that I'm part of this place, part of this landscape. Here, when I position my camera and it's like large format, it takes some time and I was waiting for the clouds to get into the formation and they move so fast. And the right. <laughs> so I was waiting for the sun to basically hit the fence so it will give it this like vibrant contrast. And while I was waiting, which was quite a while, I had my breakfast and I, with the <laughs> banana skin in hand, I thought, oh, just left it on the fence as a, because this thing, like I kept seeing everywhere, like people are leaving things hang on fences. It's like an English thing. Like I found your glove. It's here on the fence. Like, so it was quite, it was, I don't know, humorous or like an act of rebelling, just like leaving my rubbish a little bit on the fence because I'm like, yeah. up there. And, and I left the banana there and the, added the oranges just for the color and was checking on my uh, looking glass on the camera. Uh, and all of a sudden the sun just got into the right position and the clouds in the back and I just put the film in and clicked. 
And then the sun disappeared and I waited there for another hour after I took away the banana and the oranges because I wanted to get the clear shot of that. But it never happened because the sun was not working with me. Right. So that's what I had. And I came back and I developed like more works from this uh, trip. They like a couple of days trip. Uh, and when I looked at them, there was something about this particular image because of the way it was composed. But I think especially because of the banana. Yeah. Kind of at the time looked like an, okay, that's a bit like cheeky and a bit maybe gimmicky, but there was something about it that had uh, helped me insert my presence or to claim my presence. And from that moment, I think it was a long uh, process. And But this idea of intervention within the landscape is something that came forward and something that I started repeating in the work in different forms. So I would paint puddles like in red color i was thinking of like uh, landscape photography uh, as this like forensic approach with the large format so something like of a crime scene But yeah, you, you mentioned like the enclosure act and all of that. So so from that moment, this encounter with me in the landscape or the boundaries or, or this being outsider or other uh, brought up a lot of uh, ideas when I was working on my dissertation and the research. So the enclosure act, like how the land was divided like that. Why was it divided like that? And from there, I got deeper into the idea of land ownership and on distribution of land and wealth and and the structure, like the structure of of old culture, which is something that I, like in Israel, it's a very uh, new country yeah. with long heritage on one hand and narrative, but uh, there isn't this deep uh, structure. So yeah. yeah, that was very interesting. And that took me obviously to the picturesque, which is somehow related to this closure uh, somewhere I reference in the in the in the dissertation this idea that you cannot access places give priority to the eye so you look at places from the outside in and a lot of places within the English landscape even the what became later the national parks like the Peak District the Lake District if you think of how they are constructed they are constructed to be consumed as visuals and not really as accessible as they are maybe today they are more accessible so you can walk around and there's this like uh, the right of uh, ro right Rome uh, in places and what this thing did when I started the research and I was focusing on these exclusions so the boundaries all of a sudden became uh, an important element of the work so I was starting to look for the boundaries or picturesque boundaries so one that will suit my uh, uh, aesthetic uh, vision because there's so many of them but I'm not just about to prove a point that there's plenty of them I do want to create this tension between the tradition of the picturesque of this romantic notion which is to some extent very much connected to English uh, nationalism English mm. sentiments like thinking of Constable I think we both watched this video about how Constable is so uh, well known or, or, or welcomed at this point in time or 
in the past uh, hundred years uh, within English culture that it like ends up in like tiles in the bathroom, like the hay wine is yeah, everywhere. Yeah. Like, find it on tea mugs and it's bizarre to think that this is part of what define a nation like this uh this conception which is we know today it's a misconception of what the relationship between men and nature was even at the time like we're talking about the early uh kind of like uh, transformation into industrial era and constable even the hay wine like is this is rem- like doesn't give you any hint of what's going on in the world at that time, really. If you put it in that context, it's completely ignoring. He is himself extremely romantic into his own childhood memories or visions or hopes to what the country is. And I think a lot of English people, when I speak to them, like speak to English people, because I'm always like interested in that like uh, encounter or conversation because I am outsider. So, so I am interested in thinking what the English people diversity of them thinking of these places like the lake district the peak district and and like nobody really from like my immediate circle that are not like the academic more kind of like criticizing everything circles right. nobody really bring up the problematicity of these places everybody's drawn into you know what it stands for like it's the great british like tradition of picturesque and beautiful and so that's something that I find really interesting because it's extremely nationalist mm. in the way that it's been capitalized by the nation. Have you been back to Israel since you moved here? Yeah, I've been there. I've been back a couple of times, um, but I haven't really been doing more work there, which is it's like this interesting thing because I am wondering at what point will I go back there and will become an outsider, even there, which is quite scary because like, I like being the outsider here because it's not my place. So I'm always like a visiting, a guest, a trespasser uh, within the landscape. But even, even when I try and do work about the English landscape, it's almost like trying to trespass within into art history or something, you know? So there's something exciting about that act of like being trespasser. But within Israel, it's going to be weird, like to feel that I don't belong. Thank you for listening to Uncanny Landscapes. We'll be back soon with the next installment. My guest was Roy Greenberg, discussing his photography projects, such as English Encounters and Along the Break which you can view on his website, roeygreenbergphotography.com. That's R-O-E-I, Greenberg Photography. You can find links to his site and current exhibition details in the Uncanny Landscapes info. The music was Star of Crow Wood by Russell McAlpine, with thanks to the artist. The title theme is by the Belbury Polly, courtesy Ghostbox Records, and the Uncanny Landscapes icon is by Stefan Musgrove, Firebrand Creative. Additional special thanks to Lucy Greaves. I'm Justin Hopper. You can contact me via justin-hopper.com or on Twitter, at OldWeirdAlbion. More installments coming soon. Follow or subscribe, if that's an option, or keep a lookout on the wires. Until then, remember Bram Stoker. It was brilliant moonlight, and the soft effect of the light over the sea and sky 
merged together in one great silent mystery, was beautiful beyond words. Between me and the moonlight flitted a great bat, coming and going in great whirling circles. <laughs>